This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Last week, my eldest daughter was on spring break. Next week, my youngest daughter will be. Here in the U.S., it's that time of year. With recent reports indicating our kids are not getting even close to the amount of time they need outside, I offer out this week's guests and their work as inspiration to help your kids and you go outside and play. Children today don't have the opportunity to roam the way that lots of us remember. I think it's really important that we create outdoor spaces where children can have those experiences in nature. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Mid-March in my part of the world means schools are beginning their annual spring break rotations. Spring is almost officially here, and with what used to be the standard adult admonition of go outside and play is as enticing as it ever gets. For all of us, but maybe especially for school-age children looking toward the last long stretch of the school year and the rising feeling of restlessness after the winter months more cooped up than usual. According to the most recent reports, the average U.S. child has only four to seven minutes of unstructured outdoor play each day, while they simultaneously spend an average of seven and a half hours in front of electronic media. As a result, child obesity has reached unprecedented levels and continues to rise. Children are carrying this sedentary lifestyle and disconnection with nature into adulthood, which creates a troubling national trend for the future of conservation, our economies, and the health and wellness of our communities. Just in time for spring break this week, we're in conversation with two women dedicated to helping us and our kids get outside, get in touch with our natural world, soak up some sunshine, and perhaps regain their and our inherent senses of selves. We'll speak first with the inimitable Amanda Thompson, whose work under the name of Kiss My Aster, with humor and refreshing irreverence, asks us to reconsider our relationship with our gardens. Her newest book, Backyard Adventure, Get Messy, Get Wet, Build Cool Things, and Have Tons of Fun, asks us to reframe what is fun, allowed, and actively encouraged in our backyards with our children. It's a fabulous permission slip with helpful and affirming instruction and messages for us and our children to get outside and really play. In the second half of the program, we'll welcome founder and principal designer at Early Space LLC, Nancy Strinisty. With backgrounds in landscape design and early childhood education, Nancy teaches at Antioch New England University in their nature-based early childhood graduate certificate program, and she serves on the leadership team of Nova Outside. Her new book, Nature Play at Home, Creating Outdoor Spaces that Connect Children with the Natural World, is out in early April. 
And now we're talking to Amanda. She joins us today via Skype. Welcome, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get started with you describing your current life and work with plants and gardens, Amanda. All right. Well, I live about eight miles from the Chicago city limits in suburban Cook County in a falling down 1950s atomic ranch on about an acre and a quarter of land, which is like as close to the city as you can get and still have a great big fat backyard. And um, I picked this because it's just the perfect place for raising a kid. It's like a kid ranch. There's a stream running through it, the the weeping willow, all the, the things that a kid needs to absolutely get a good base coat of poison ivy before the age of 10, all, all the things. Um, and, and that's just for her. Uh, I have a seven year old, but, um, I have, I'm tearing out the yard. There was, when we moved in, it was all the 1950s landscaping. It was overgrown, um, ball shaped arborvitaes that hadn't been treated to any kind of self care. And, and, a million years. And so it's like a blank canvas over here. We, we tore all that out. We still, uh, find red lava rock every once in a while that percolates to the surface we have dead ash trees. There's just a lot here for me to work with and it keeps me off the streets. <laughs> so you've been there for six years. You have a seven year old. You chose it specifically because of its kid ranch appeal. What, yes. what like, what set you up to be an adult who would put that as one of her top priorities in choosing a house? I'm just as shocked by it as anybody. <laughs> uh, to tell you the truth, I didn't even like kids until I had one. Um, and I really like her a lot. I, I grew up in a, in a very similar situation to this. And, and I think that it was really ideal for me. And uh, I, I grew up about 15 minutes north of here. Um, again, outside of city limits, but a little bit for more suburban and, um, I lived in a neighborhood where everyone was much older than us, which is a similar situation here. And everyone had backyards that were at least an acre and a half. And the neighbors didn't mind if we ran through their yards and, um, we just, we, you know, there were a few kids in the neighborhood, but we came a, a, a great street gang of kids who just loved nature and, um, you know, played bunnies in the tall grass. And it's just, th- this is what I wanted for her. And, uh, I'm glad that she likes it for herself too, because um, trying to fight her device. And frankly, it's really easy for any parent to just say, "Here's the device." They don't make messes. They don't make noise. <laughs> and I get it. I mean, I totally get it. But um, I don't mind messes and noise. So let's let's go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is very, very clear in your book, which is which is why I said in the introduction that you give some very good information, but also really positive messages, kind of reframing what what we're what we're here for and, and what we're built for as human creatures, large and small. So I want to I want to go back a little bit. Uh, you have a fantastic uh, dedication in your book to your own parents and your childhood. And you say it was ideal and just a little strange. Yes. My dad uh, was raised in Indiana. And whereas he has like no roots in agriculture whatsoever, he is like a frustrated farmer. And that's what he, I mean, he's just wants to be that. That's what he, he like is like a self-identified farmer who was never farmed. And um, he, we had a huge victory garden 
growing up. And my parents were huge fans of uh, James Underwood Crockett. So we watched the Crockett's Victory Garden Mm -hmm. and anything he said to do, my parents did. It's hard to compare or understand different people having different abilities and privileges. And um, and I just assumed that every kid had grew their own their own Halloween pumpkins. Like I didn't understand that you could buy them. And I spent all all day, every day outside when I was little. And um, my parents would put a peanut butter and jelly on the back steps for me around lunchtime. And they would, when they start trying to get me in for, for dinner, they would measure the time in which I could stay outside. Cause I was, you know, too small, didn't wear a watch. They would say, you can be outside for one more Mr. Rogers or two more Mr. Rogers. So that's the way they would tell time for me. Mm-hmm. So if I, either I had a half an hour or an hour or uh, three Mr. Rogers, if I was lucky. And, um, and I would just, I would just be gone. And I can't, I don't know any parents who are comfortable with that anymore. It seems like it was just yesterday for me. We're in a completely different space now. Completely different space. So as you go along your journey from here, you go to college, you drop out of college, you take up a five-year career at the very young Starbucks, and then a friend's mother encourages you to try your hand at garden center work. And from there, you're in. You learn plants, you learn their names, you learn design, and you move into blogging. Ultimately, you write your first book for story publishing with your editor, Carlene, based on your blog entitled Kiss My Aster, which is now your very active, quirky, and garden-based social media name. And this led to your second book, Backyard Adventure. Walk us through this journey a little. Now that Facebook and Instagram are just what we have and no one has the attention, I just write, I challenge myself to write a silly gardening meme every day, and I do it almost every day. And some of them are funny. Some of them are not. And it doesn't really matter to me because I am so in my head. If I can get something out, then I make space for something else like feeding my family breakfast or walking the dogs. I can remember to do all that stuff. And that led to the second book. It was such a great idea. And it was something that I'm so in love with. It's so personal and it's so how I roll over here. This is not an admission of a a bad mothering. I think it's an admission of just where it is. I made up all the stuff for her to do so that I could get some time in the garden. I set her up with all these crazy props or whatever she needs to do. And then I get to do my thing and, and I need to do my thing. I need that creative flow or I am a very unhappy camper. I know that she's, she loves nature the way I do. Um, it's still, you know, we haven't been out there when it's been 50 below, but we get out there. As a parent of two young children who spent a great deal of time in the garden for the exact same reason that you spent, uh, you, your child spends a lot of time in the garden, um, it's healthy for everybody. And we don't need reports to tell us that as growing living beings. We need sunshine. We need exercise. This kind of activity improves our executive function. It teaches us to take risks. It teaches us to be more social. And it gives us this incredible love of and knowledge of and connection to nature, which is so increasingly endangered in in our, in our lifetime. So now we'll go back to your book. And give us the history of, of the book when you when you decided to take ownership of the idea. Uh, at the beginning, Carlene's idea was this, like, how to create a yard filled with wonder. And I, I, I so, like, that's so who I am. Like, I don't care. I genuinely don't care what my neighbors think of what's going on over here. I, I really, 
look to create discoveries for my daughter and for myself. I'm just, I'm the same. I'm a seven-year-old in my mind. I, I want to find those discoveries too. I, um, I, I really bit into it and, and it, it slowly evolved into this much more, um, what my, uh, the working title that I, I really worked so hard for. And they were like, yeah, no, that's not going to work out was yard punks creating tiny anarchists and screaming all the time. And they were like, the demographic for that is really tiny. I'm like, I'd buy it. Um, that's exactly what I am looking for here is like little kids taking charge and, and making their own little rebellions. And, um, it's just so good for them to figure this stuff out now and, uh, to take some, some risks and, and discoveries. And, uh, it's, there's just, it's all right there for them. And it is all just so in this area that sadly in so many suburban spaces, the space goes completely unused. It's a Mm -hmm. showpiece Mm -hmm. for what? Mm -hmm. And there's in, in, in this area where I live, there is a very bizarre suburban normal that is, it's good for no one or nothing. And, and there's rituals and routines that are are just bizarre. And it's to show that you're a good neighbor and that you hold up your side of the street, except that it's not good for anybody. It's not good for the ecosystem. It's not good for children. It's not good for, you know, my next door neighbor weed and feeds twice a week. He mows three times a week. That's not good for anybody. Mm -mm. It might be good for him. I might be good for his marriage. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is over there, but, um, I just feel so strongly about giving people, uh, people know what they, they, there's so many books out there that tells people that tell people what they should do. But I really want to be this person who says, here's what you could do. Here's what, here's what you can do. And here's permission to do it because whatever you feel like doing and society tells you not to stop that, just stop it now. Mm-hmm. And all of this is very apparent in the fabulous table of contents right right off the <laughs> bat. And one of the things that's great is as a mother of a young girl, you absolutely don't shy away from mess, mud, poison ivy, whatever it may be, that kind of out-of-controlness of what it is to play in the backyard as a kid on your own. There's so much political correctness about a thousand different things, but you don't shy away from the fact that they could get hurt. You have swords, you have bombs, you have all kinds of places to hide, and it's a very engaged language set that you use to encourage the play. Yeah, if kids don't get this stuff figured out when they're little, either uh, there's studies that show that kids who uh who have a drastic fall when they're little aren't afraid of falls when they get older they're not afraid of heights kids who have a near drowning experience which uh i'm not suggesting a near drowning experience but anyways those kids are not afraid of drowning they're like i've already i've already kicked this to the curb i already know how to deal with this i'm already the master of this Mm -hmm. so if kids can get outside in their yards and they figure this stuff out on their own it's, it's such a big deal. It's about risk taking. And for me, uh, I grew up outside and, and I ended up to be a landscaping project manager because I can notice the, the patterns in nature. I understand the way things grow and I can manage projects because when we had these like, you know, bands of girls who threw apples at boys, I was the leader on that. And I was like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pick the apples before they even see us coming. They, we're going to be silent. We're going to pick these apples. We're going to eat the apples that look good. 
And the ones that definitely have worms in them and hornets coming out of those, those go in the baskets to throw at the boys. I organized this stuff back <laughs> then, and it, it ended up pretty good for, uh, for you know, <laughs> for a career that, that I my, channeled my bossiness into action. Mm-hmm. And, and how that becomes an actual lesson is bizarre, but it does. It, they've, they've proven that it's all for real, that you're prepared that you have long-term knowledge that, that, that reaches into your adulthood, it's all real. Yeah. And it's all just sitting out there waiting to be picked. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very literally. Amanda Thompson is a mother, gardener, and outdoor evangelist. She's the author of Backyard Adventure, Get Messy, Get Wet, Build Cool Things, and Have Tons of Fun. It's a fabulous and fun permission slip with helpful and affirming instructions and messages for us and our kids to get outside and really play. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Can I just say, I was scraping ice off my windshield last week, and then early daffodils are up and so cheerful only to be lambasted by rain and wind, like a tempest. Winter and spring are at their annual tug-of-war, sometimes being a little cheeky about it, other times being kind of snarky about it. Are you ready for a boost? I am, and I may have just the thing. With the idea of offering out just such a boost, Cultivating Place has created an extra bit of garden audio for our generous donors. For all of you who've donated $30 or more between January 1st and the Vernal Equinox next week, March 20th, you will receive the full audio file of the Cultivating Place theme song, written and sung with such beauty by the duo Ma Muse. I know you'll love it. You'll sing it out loud. Additionally, for all of you who've so generously given $120 or more as a single donation or as a $10 recurring monthly supporter between January 1st and before March 20th's ushering in of spring, you will now receive a bonus audio mid-month pick-me-up by email as a five-minute or so monthly seasonal reminder of the importance beauty, and meaning of this practice and passion we all engage in. The first of these monthly audio garden love letters is with Robin Wall Kimmerer. Her words will help you welcome spring. They'll help you tap back into the meaning and connection of your place, and they'll warm the most wintry of hearts. I love creating Cultivating Place. Thank you for your encouragement and support. Your financial support helps us make this program the very best it can be. And if you've been waiting for the right time to donate and support, this is it. And giving is easy, quick, and secure. Click the Donate button at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com and you'll be connected to the North State Public Radio donation page in support of this specific program. Every donation is a vote of support for public radio and this programming. Thank you for listening. Thank you for donating. I can't wait to share these new audio elements with you, and I can't wait for spring. Now, back to our conversation with Amanda Thompson of Kiss My Aster and Backyard Adventure.
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back from a break to continue our conversation with Amanda Thompson of Kiss My Aster. Her new book, Backyard Adventure, reminds us of the importance and appeal of letting our kids get messy, get wet, build cool stuff, and have fun. With kids getting outdoors less and less of each day, this is a welcome reminder. Welcome back. I want you to walk us through the table of contents and important takeaways in each of these sections, Amanda. Um, So chapter one is forts and other hideaways. And the first thing that we did on that uh, is one of the, the, it starts out with scrounging for building materials, which is like lists of all the things that kids can use to play that you, I'm, I tend to be a bit of a, I'm a thing haver. I'm a thing finder. So it's not hard for me to just throw a bunch of stuff in the driveway and, and for her to build out of it. But it's lists of things that you can buy or purchase or just accumulate for kids to build with. And then it talks about different kinds of playhouses and things like that. Um, the uh, badger hole was a big deal in uh, when we did the photo shoot for this. The photo shoots for this book uh, were harrowing. And uh, if my daughter could be here, she would give you a good 20 minute lecture about how it looks like they're having fun in the photos, but they are not, they are working. Um, The badger hole was hilarious. It's something that uh, my husband and I ran into in our, we had a very uh, deluxe when you just get married because you want to be married so bad and you don't have any money and you're so young and you just take off to Wisconsin for a very high profile, all the way deluxe, uh, honeymoon. And we toured an old mining, a Welsh mining area in, (laughs) it says so much about me. So like, you know, I just got married yesterday. Today I'm touring an old Welsh mining village in, um, in Southwestern Wisconsin. And they were, they said that the, the miners would live in these badger holes. And I was like, whoa, 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 slow down lady in reproduction docent wear. They would dig a hole and they would just put a branch over it and they'd live in these holes all, all summer long. And so this is, I've been married since forever. This badger hole thing has just been stuck in my brain and it needed to come out. And, um, so we had, you know, a kid living in a badger hole in the backyard for a couple hours. <laughs> That's how things work around here. Um, one of them is a packing material, uh, tent that we made out of, um, some copper tubing and some uh, bubble wrap Mm -hmm. and that we found out that when the sun hits the bubble wrap, it's actually a nice little microclimate right inside. And Mm. it's a great place to play when it's winter. And, um, there are tunnels and cardboard castles and, um, living willow hideaways. It's, uh, it, I'm going to say that every section is my favorite section. So I, I really couldn't say, but. I love this section. Uh, the section, chapter two, is places for tinkering. My favorite, favorite, favorite thing in the whole book, and yeah, everything's my favorite, is the mud laboratory. So I know that people have had mud pie kitchens for years, nothing new, except I really wanted to take it, um, I wanted to take the kitchen out of it completely and turn it into science and science for boys and girls, science for anybody. So we have a laboratory in the backyard with, I went to American Science and Surplus and bought all the plastic beakers and test tubes and everything that they have. And the kids put on little genius, I have to say, some genius came up with this idea. Yeah, that was me. Um, Put on a little 
kid a lab coat and they don't get as filthy <laughs> and they want to wear the lab coat because it's part of the play and they want to wear protective eyewear because that's part of the play. So I, I stock that with a little bit of food coloring and some water and some sand and soil and they're just out there for hours making terrible things and then dumping it on each other's heads. It's great. It's great. I had a total control freak mom reaction to the plastic wrap um, tent. I'm like, I just, I don't want to use plastic. But then I think about it to myself, Amanda. And so I have this whole like schizophrenic conversation with myself of like, your garage is full of plastic packing material because you don't want to put it in a landfill, but people send it to you at Christmas. So this is a great use for it. Right. I didn't go out and buy bubble wrap. Right. Exactly. So I think Uh, that's an important uh, thing. right. Right. Getting some cheap junk that no one needs versus my daughter spending six hours on her iPad. I, uh, the cheap junk is looking more attractive all the time. All the time. Right. So, um, okay, so we were tinkering. We were at the science lab um, using, all the, using all the parts. And there are some great experiments in here, which are, which are wonderful, um, including the, I think this is still in the same one, the um, setting a booby trap. Love that. Yep. Yes. Uh, okay, keep going. The chapter three is naturally wild, which is we talk about tiny little gardens, growing tiny fruit trees. There's natural paints and dyes, which is a photo shoot with little Reagan pushing berries into uh, craft paper and making her own designs, growing your own snacks. Um, my daughter is obsessed with eating cucamelons, which are really not that pleasant to eat. But when you're tiny, something that's tiny and your size just tastes better because it's your size. The next one is the one with with the outdoor shower and the outdoor toilet and leaves you should not use as toilet paper. (laughs) And that is a a good one. I love the hand washing station. And it's so reasonable. Like, here's here's how you're going to get muddy and dirty. And here's how you can clean up. And the cleanup is part of the play, which is, again, going back to all these lessons that kids can learn. It's like, sure, you can literally go outside and play in mud. And then here's how to have an outdoor shower that costs nothing and it's just easy to do. And um, I mean, the, the, the hose is enough, but this is a, a one step past that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did some camp food and old timey cooking. And one of the things we did was take, uh, and this is a terrible thing to give children, and that's why they should have it. Ice cream cones. And then we've, you can have a, a bar set up with all the different things that you can jam inside the ice cream cones, like chocolate and marshmallows and jam actual jam and caramel sauce and different candies and then wrap it in tin foil and put it on the side of the campfire then it becomes an absolutely evil little treat and um there's outdoor stages which we had a fun time filming my daughter takes over every every scene that she tries chapter five is sidewalks fences and driveways we talk about graffiti and writing on the driveway and exploding sidewalk chalk one of the best ones is just rubbing shaving cream all over the fence and then using Cheetos and different cheese puffs to write your name and or using leaves to stick on the the shaving cream. I I think that's a totally reasonable idea to spend an afternoon. (laughs) I can understand where I might get some friction on that further down the line, but I'm standing by it right now. I loved the Um, look of that one. That was one of my favorites, and it it takes no room at all. That's the other joy, and you just can hose it down. So, uh, Chapter 6 is the adventure course, which my my heart lies in the adventure course. We did this for Hazel's birthday. I would say 6th or 5th birthday. I don't really remember we had an adventure course birthday and it was just hilarious and they I would blow the whistle and the first thing they had to do was stomp in I laid out eight hula hoops and I put different 
crappy snack foods in the hula hoops. So the, the kids all saw that there was crappy snack foods at the party and then they had to step on them. We didn't get to eat them because we ate healthy food instead. <laughs> so they're, they're stomping on corn chips and cheese poofs. And, and then the second thing they had to do was they all had to sit on a whoopee cushion, which they were horrified. They were horrified that I could do anything so base to like six, six year olds and seven year olds were like, Oh gosh, how could you make us do this? And then they had to throw eggs at each other from a certain amount away, but they didn't know that I had hard boiled most of them. So they, they were bracing for the worst and, and then nothing <laughs> happened, but some of them, you know, some of them are raw. And then they they had to wrap their moms with toilet paper. Then there was like a bozo buckets. And then they had, there's a pie toss, which became a, a real crazy thing. And then the second to last thing was a, a slime pit. You can actually buy a mix and add water to it and it'll make a, a vat of slime. So I had a baby pit, a baby pool filled with slime and then there was a water slide that they had to go to to kind of get them rinsed off and, and to see if they could do this whole thing in less than five minutes. Here's the thing. It took some time to set it up. It took some materials to set it up. I only invited a few families. The, the parents sat in a tent and watched all this mayhem happen. But what we delivered was an ultimately low-cost, super healthy day out where all of those kids fell asleep on the way home and then just went right to bed. <laughs> So we had a ton of fun with that. Uh, chapter seven is water bubbles and goo, which is great for the smaller kids, especially. This is where they had Tyvek suits on and the big sisters got to fill the Tyvek suits with tiny little water balloons. So there's two little kids wearing Tyvek suits that are tied at the wrists and ankles. And they're putting these water balloons inside inside the, the Tyvek suits so that the suits filling up. So these 40 pound kids are all of a sudden 80 pound kids and they can't walk. And they're so heavy with water balloons. And every time they try to take a step, the water balloons start to break and they're getting wet inside. And they're just <laughs> laughing. Everyone is laughing. So I didn't know I could laugh this hard. Um, they were knocking. They could knock each other over just with one finger. They would just go down like a stack of bricks. It was hilarious fun. Duct tape zombies, hilarious. You take a kid, you wrap the kid in saran wrap, and then you wrap them in cheap duct tape. And then you can slice that off and then you have a, a very creepy mummy of your kid that uh, you don't do their face. You just do their body. And uh, the good one of William, they left that up all winter. And then in the spring, possums dragged it underneath their garage and they did it slowly. <laughs> so that first one arm goes under the garage and there's just a, a big silver duct tape body flailing from underneath the garage. And then slowly the other arm disappears under the garage and there's just legs under the garage like a... Uh, the Wicked Witch of the West. And then at the end of the book, there's a secret section for parents only, which gives a little bit of the permission and the the scope of what you can do to make your backyard perfect for this kind of work. And I will minimize it by saying you have little kids just wood chip the whole thing and figure out what you want in 10 years when they don't need it anymore. They need it more than you do. Nothing as important as your kids having an outdoor space that they don't have any fear of breaking anything or um, coming into contact with chemicals. It's not a sacrifice, honestly, to dedicate your yard to the kids. And when your neighbors are like, yeah, your backyard's messy. I don't know why people are so afraid of messes. It's ultimately, it's afraid of judgment. Like if I make a mess, someone will see that mess. Who cares? At what point does our own well-being supersede what the neighbors think about what we're doing on the other side of the fence? Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's a pleasure, and your book is a great joy. Thank you so much for having me. 
If you're just joining us, we are celebrating spring break and all of the outdoor play it should entail for us and our kids. My guests today remind us how and why this outdoor play, apparently an endangered element in U.S. childhoods, is important and how it's done. We've just been hearing from Amanda Thompson, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Nancy Strinisty, landscape designer and early childhood educator. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud here. I think if anyone in the world knows the importance and cellular level need of we human living beings to be outside, it's us gardeners. And my bet is that our children benefit greatly from this model and sometimes forced time outside in the name of our sanity. This information from Harvard Health will come as nothing new to you, but I'm going to repeat it here anyway as your weekly permission slip to not only get your children, but get yourselves outside to your garden or the trail and know it's the best thing you can do for you and them. Here's what Harvard reminds us about what we already know. Getting outside for some unstructured time provides all of us with necessary sunshine. It helps us make vitamin D, which in turn improves everything from our bone development, immune systems, healthy sleep, and mood. Our bodies work best when they get some sunshine every day. Exercise. Humans should be active for at least an hour every day. And getting outside to play is one of the best ways to be sure this happens. Executive function. Our gardens make us smarter. Getting outside and putting ourselves to work improves our executive function. And it's crucial for our success. Creativity falls in here too, and using our imaginations to problem solve and entertain ourselves, have our kids entertain themselves. These are the skills that we have to learn and practice. And to do this, we need unstructured time alone, preferably outdoors. Getting outside teaches us to take healthy risks. I love this. Children and we need to take some risks. It teaches us limits, confidence, and as we all know, the lessons we learn from failure, even in the garden, are just as important as those we learn from success. Love and connection to nature, our environmental literacy, which is coupled so beautifully with our cultural literacy. So much of our world is changing and not for the better. If a child or an adult exists, never walking in the woods, digging in the soil, seeing animals in their habitats, climbing a mountain, playing in a stream, or staring at the endless horizon of an ocean or a valley, we may never really understand what there is to be lost. The future of our planet depends on us understanding this, on our children understanding it. We all need to remember to appreciate it. We as gardeners who get this to the very core of ourselves, we can help others. Indeed, we can help our whole culture reset our baseline to a more expansive place, not a more contracted one. The shifting baseline concept is scary and tragic and something we can help address. 
with our gardens and our gardening ways. Finally, getting outside and working in our gardens gets us socializing, a skill and activity we also all need, us and our kids. This past weekend, I was reminded of this when John and I took a gardener's day out and drove the three and a half hours to the wonderful gardens of Filoli in Woodside, California, where we heard the fabulous Ginny Blom speak on her life's work and the power of conservation potential in gardens and design. I had the great fun of seeing old gardening friends and meeting new ones, especially Monica, Amy, and Caroline three listeners out there who very kindly introduced yourselves to me and made my day. It was a gift to be in company with you all and with wonderful plants, plantings, and plants people together. Thank you for finding me. Now, back to our conversation about getting outside to play, as we're joined now by Nancy Strinistein. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In this next section of our spring break special, we're joined by founder and principal designer at Early Space LLC, Nancy Strinisty, a landscape designer and early childhood educator. She teaches at Antioch New England University in their nature-based early childhood graduate certificate program. Her new book, Nature Play at Home, Creating Outdoor Spaces that Connect Children with the Natural World, is out in early April from Timber Press. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Let's get started by having you describe for us the journey that led you to writing Nature Play at Home. Well, I'm a landscape designer and an educator. My specialty is designing natural play and learning spaces for children. I work with lots of schools and early childhood programs and families, creating places that connect children to nature. That's been my my career focus for many years. The book was the logical next step. Let's step back to your to your own personal growth and development that led you to being an educator and a, a plants person that chose this as a career, Nancy. I live in Virginia now, but I grew up in Massachusetts mm-hmm. and lived in kind of a suburban neighborhood where I had a free-range childhood where I was playing outside all the time. And I had older, much older siblings. So I had nieces and nephews when I was pretty young. And that, I think, became the way that I connected with children. Mm -hmm. And I think that was my first passion was working with children. And as a student, when I was in college, getting an undergraduate degree in education was when I first came across the idea that spaces for children could be beautiful. I remember one of my professors did a presentation about a trip she had taken to Sweden and where she visited childcare in Sweden. And that was just really eye-opening experience for me to see how beautifully designed the spaces for children were Mm. in Scandinavia. And I think that's when I started to get really excited about the potential of, of spaces for children. And then as a teacher, as an early childhood educator, I did a lot of 
creating things in my classroom, making things and rearranging the space and really using the physical space as the curriculum for, for young children. So there were always textures on the floor and interactive things on the walls and canopies from the ceiling. And eventually I started to connect with the idea that the outdoors could be created and designed in the same kind of intricate way to be really engaging to children. Mm -hmm. So that was probably my entry into it was thinking about the users of the space, the the children. And what's interesting is that, of course, there is integral to what you just described, and especially in your, you know, the, the users of these spaces. There's not only the children, because, of course, the outdoors is inherently engaging to children. It is the outdoors that is being controlled specifically by adults so that children are safe and contained and seems to be the the greatest instinct that adults have when they create schools or playgrounds is that they want to engage them without losing control of them. And so there's trying to work all of these different stakeholders and their end desires into an outdoor space. Am I right when I say that? Yes, I think you're right in that through adult eyes, we often come to the to the process of creating outdoor spaces for children with safety as a priority, often with like, I don't want my child to get dirty, or right. I, yeah, <laughs> those kinds of things. What I really try to do when I'm working with school groups or with, with clients is to get them to remember what they loved to do as children yeah. and how they like to play. And that helps to kind of shift their focus into thinking about outdoor spaces as the magical sites for childhood. Yeah. Um, and children today don't have the opportunity to to roam the way that lots of us remember. And so I think it's really important that we create outdoor spaces where children can have those natural, those experiences in nature. Right, right. And this is one of the things I really loved about the book is your approach with this recognition that there there are these controlled outdoor spaces for children, whether there are back gardens at home or their schoolyards or playgrounds in the, the public park, and that somewhere along the way, we, especially in North America, created them with only the adult criteria in mind and less and less of the child criteria in mind. I don't think they're necessarily articulated criteria, but those those intersectional points where magic happens for kids in the outdoors and you combine them. What were some of the other things that made you say, okay, I, I really need to actually help families with this through the course of a book? And then talk us through some of the elements of the of the book and how you ultimately researched and put it together? Through the work that I've been doing for many years, designing spaces for children, a lot of my work is with schools and early childhood programs and, mm -hmm. and parks and things like that. Less of it is with families. And honestly, that tends to be because families can't afford to hire designers, young families. Mm -hmm. um, and so 
in some ways, the book is a response to that. It's it's putting those resources in the hands of of parents who want to be able to provide these things for their children and transform their outdoor spaces. And so the book is a way to make it really accessible to families. And and then the other thing is that not everyone has a backyard that they can transform. Mm-hmm. And lots of the work that I do through my design practice is with schools and early childhood programs where parents have the idea that that the outdoor space could be better for their children. And they they find me and they're advocating for change at their children's schools or early childhood programs or at their neighborhood parks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another way that I'm really hoping that the book will be a resource um, in helping especially parents, but also educators to advocate for bringing nature to the schoolyards and the places where children are spending their time. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to have you walk us through the major headings and sections of the book because you clearly developed a methodical approach to thinking about the the space that you're in, um, arranging it, and then addressing some elements of childhood play and engagement that make some sense all together. Yeah, the book really brings together lots of things that I that I know about, that I care deeply about, that I'm really passionate about. So the foundation I would say for the book is is an understanding of child development and how children relate to their environment. Mm. And a, a passion on my part for sustainability and for caring for the planet. Those themes are woven throughout the book. And then I thought about different categories of the things that children can do or experience when they're in the out of doors, inspiring children's imaginations, awakening their senses, connecting them to nature, obviously, is a mm-hmm. huge part of the experience in a natural play space. I tried to think about active play and how natural play spaces can really support and inspire active play. And and I tried to really think about um, making outdoor spaces comfortable. You know, there needs to be some shade and a place to sit down mm-hmm. to make people, families, um, want to be outside and able to be outside for extended periods of time. And that's a, that's a big theme. I think throughout the book is that time is a really important component to providing these experiences for children. We can make the space, but if they're only outside for 20 minutes a day, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. So that's another thing that I really want parents who read the book to think about is is just providing extended unstructured time outdoors in these natural play spaces. Yeah, because all of the reports coming back right now are worse and worse all the time, which is really what inspired me to put this episode together is that, you know, we're about to enter spring break here in my part of the country, my younger daughter has hers in two weeks. My older daughter has hers next week. And 
parents are starting to think about what kinds of activities their kids will be involved in and sign up for this summer. And all reports are saying that children spend on average somewhere between four and seven minutes of unstructured time outside every day, whereas they spend seven hours on a screen on average. Right. It's stunning. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. Um, There's a book that I really like called Balanced and Barefoot Mm. by a woman who is a, I think she's an occupational therapist and who wrote this book. And she says that uh, that preschool age children need eight hours a day of vigorous activity using their bodies. And even 10 to 16 year olds need three to four hours a day. So when you look at the statistics of kids spending 10 minutes outdoors playing actively, it's it's terribly worrisome mm-hmm. to think about what's happening developmentally. Yeah. Children aren't getting what they need. No. And they're not getting what we want them to have in the long run in terms of, as you say, imagination, problem solving, a, a real relationship with nature, uh, physical endurance and resilience, it's its very worrisome and it's not hard to fix if we just spend a little bit of intention and time allowing it to be. Right, yeah. exactly. So in, in the course of the book, you have some wonderful sections. Arranging spaces is one of them, awakening senses, challenging bodies, which is really getting to the physical engagement and, and health and strength part of it, inviting nature. I love the story where there's the, the teacher that realized that a lot of her students didn't have space outside for them to have a bird feeder at home. And so they hadn't hadn't even had that calculated engagement with nature of watching birds come to a feeder. And so she made sure that they had a lot of feeders in their um, school yard, which was wonderful. Um, you then talk about inspiring imagination, building confidence, which is part of this problem solving that comes with being outside on your own in an unstructured way. And then, as you say, the, the creating comfort and taking action. Were there surprises along the way for you in in the putting of the book together? It was a long process. Yeah. It was, so I was giving a presentation, doing a webinar for mm-hmm. landscape designers, and that led to writing an article for the Conservation Landscape Council. And an editor from my publishers saw the article and got in touch, and eventually that led to um, – a contract to write the book in early, what, late 2016, mm-hmm. I got the contract to write the book. So then I needed to start writing it in 2017. And honestly, for the first three months of 2017, I was paralyzed. I couldn't do anything after the election. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I eventually pulled myself together and started writing the book. And, and I knew that I that there were certain things that I really wanted to include in the book. I wanted there to be lots of step-by-step projects that families could do. Um, so I spent some time thinking about a range of activities that I thought would be from simple to more complex that would really give people the tools that they would need to create change in their environments. Um, 
and I knew I'm I'm really passionate about plants and especially about native plants. And I really wanted to think through creating accessible plant lists that people could use to bring color and texture and fragrance and pickable parts and shade and all the things that plants can add to a space. And then I kind of took the presentations that I had been giving for teachers and communities over the years. And there was a structure that had evolved over the years in those presentations. And that really became the foundation of the book, thinking about um, arranging spaces and kind of how spaces can speak, especially to children. Mm -hmm. So things like make creating entries that are welcoming and that and that communicate to children that this is a place for them and yeah. thinking about pathways and circulation and how those give children messages about how to use a space, yeah. um, places where they can, you know, be exuberant and move in big, big dramatic ways and spaces where as a designer, I want them to move more slowly and more carefully. And I really feel like with good design, the space can communicate the way that it's intended to be used so that there don't need to be lots of spoken rules. Yeah. And and then just thinking about, as I said, the different activities and things that can happen in the space. So I wanted to pull together lots of, of ideas for how to provide those kinds of invitations to play in the outdoors to children. Yeah, and I love the whole section on on entryways and materials and what they what they evoke from us in terms of what is the tone of voice that the garden is either welcoming welcoming us or or giving us strict rules, right? And I mean uh-huh. it's it's sort of like going into someone's home and you can tell if it's very very tidy or you know if everything's white or um <laughs> You get these unspoken messages that are very clear about the level of behavior that is expected there. And I hadn't really thought about it before until I was looking through your book and thinking about the these these elements and, and just like the entryways and the entryway to your house and realizing that when you think about it from a child's view, it is – it says something really specific. And I, I was – I this was a lovely – recognition for me um, in a conscious way. Like it's something you kind of know intuitively, but you don't often think about it that way. Right. And as a designer or as a as a parent um, creating an outdoor space for their children, I think it's really important to do that with intention and, yeah. and to recognize the power that you have um, in making a space that's really welcoming and inviting and engaging to yeah. children. Yeah. The awakening the senses and, and your mention of the native plants that you're a champion for, which I, I love. And but then also adding those ones that add scent and texture and your list of good plants to include is is wonderful. You know, you have great sound ideas and creating sound stations and plants for listening and hearing, which is wonderful. Yeah, I hope it will be a resource that that speaks to people in 
in all different ways and, and wherever they are, that there will be things in the book that are feel doable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the things that you you emphasize in the book and that really rings true to me now that I see my daughters going off into the big bad world on their own is this idea of the the confidence that's built in being in direct relationship with the outdoors as a child. And you you give a lovely story of your father-in-law and an early childhood memory of his that really built his internal compass for his own competence. I do feel like there is incredible potential in the out-of-doors for children to develop a, a sense of themselves and a sense of their own abilities and their own competence. In my father-in-law's case, that came from the way that he in, he was grew up in China, and he could he was outside by himself a lot, and he could find bamboo shoots growing and and remembers digging them up and cooking them and eating them, and that really inspired a, a sense of his own his own competence and ability to kind of take care of himself when he was outside. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of us have those memories of foraging and, and gathering, maybe picking food and or finding food outdoors, but also building shelters. And there's a theory that that I talk about in the book that really resonates with me. It's called habitat theory. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that there are these kind of archetypal experiences of childhood that we can think back to and that have stuck with us from our own childhoods. And those tend to be, in my experience, when I ask people to remember their own childhoods, they often collect around these particular themes. The idea of prospect, which is getting up high and having a view out over the space, and that these activities like prospect correlate back to evolution and and that they were ways that our human ancestors took care of themselves and stayed safe in the outdoor environment. Mm-hmm. And that children are still really drawn in their play to kind of repeating those things. So getting up high is a kind of a fundamental appeal. And other things are are following pathways and building shelters and collecting things, collecting mm-hmm. resources. And we know kids love to collect rocks and shells and sticks and things that they find outdoors. And, and if we provide loose parts in mm-hmm. the environments that we create for children. By loose parts, I mean things that children can pick up and move and rearrange in their outdoor space. And then they kind of have the raw materials for those key kind of archetypal experiences. And those all help to build children's sense of ownership of the outdoor space and their sense that they have some control and some power. And those all go towards building a sense of self and a sense of confidence. Yeah, the habitat theory and the loose part theory is so, they're so clear. Once someone describes it to you, you're like, oh yeah, that's what my kid does all the time. And especially if I like give them the chance to do it. Is there anything else you would like to add? Well, one of the ideas that I that I included in the book the last chapter is called Taking Action. Mm-hmm. 
and one of the ideas that honestly it came to me as I was writing the book um, is the idea of nature play corridors that comes from the concept of wildlife corridors Mm -hmm. where we create habitat for wildlife in our neighborhoods and in our communities that um, that connect so that wildlife have places that meet their needs that are contiguous uh, throughout our communities. And I had the idea that we could do this in, in our neighborhoods for children, whether it's combining backyards, you know, maybe taking down fences and neighbors getting together and, um, making spaces that are maybe a little wilder than what we're used to for our backyards where children could have the opportunity in a way that feels hopefully safe enough Mm -hmm. for parents to trust that their children could be outside and kind of roaming free in a somewhat contained space but a little bigger than your own backyard yeah that's one idea that I really hope will catch on because I think that would be really good, good for children. And good for communities of people, right? Because it means that you're out in your community saying, let's, let's try and create this. Yeah, this exactly. Connection build together. Build- yeah. It, it places us a lot more firmly in this together. And I, I, I love that articulation because we know our habitats are fragmented for our wildlife when we know we can make a difference as home gardeners. And to then put that in the perspective of childhood and trying to reintegrate nature into childhood, thinking about it as currently fragmented and working on ways to reconnect it are beautiful. Yeah, building spaces and building community at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. I really am pleased to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you too. Amanda Thompson, whose work under the name of Kiss My Aster with humor and refreshing irreverence, asks us to reconsider our relationship with our gardens. Her newest book, Backyard Adventure, Get Messy, Get Wet, Build Cool Things, and Have Tons of Fun, asks us to reframe what is fun, what is allowed, and what is actively encouraged in our backyards with our children. It's a fabulous permission slip for us and our kids to get outside and really play. Nancy Strinisty is the founder and principal designer at Early Space LLC. A landscape designer and early childhood educator, she teaches at Antioch New England University. Her new book, Nature Play at Home, Creating Outdoor Spaces that Connect Children with the Natural World, is out in early April from Timber Press. I hope every single one of you and all of your children and all of the children in your neighborhood Get outside and play this week, this spring break, every day. Hey, did you hear my note last week for those of you who generously donate to Cultivating Place? In celebration of spring, there's a little something extra coming your way this month. A bonus audio thank you gift in celebration of the vernal equinox next week. I feel sure it will be just what you need to start your spring off with energetic intention. 
For all the details so you don't miss out, make sure to listen to this week's podcast breaks, read this week's show notes at cultivatingplace.com, or if you're a subscriber to the A View From Here newsletter, all the details are there too. Check it out. And of course, to all of you donors, thank you. You make this program possible. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from this week's Spring Break special, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Mom Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. Thank you.